From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 75. We made it this far. Um, Got a really good topic today that I think is long overdue. We're going to talk about early sports specialization, um, particularly in the baseball world, and uh, look at some of the research relating to it, but also some of the practical strategies that we really have to keep in the back of our mind as we interact with players, coaches, and parents um, as we attack this this population for, for long-term athletic development. With that said, um, we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus from the podcast after this episode. We're at episode 75, so uh, probably a good time to take a little bit of a break and gear up for some really good episodes um, for later this fall. So I'm going to bank some content over the next month, month and a half, and be back in, in touch soon um, with some great stuff um, as we kind of roll into the baseball offseason. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously, our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. All right, so we had a recent Q&A on my Instagram, um, which is something I'll do uh, periodically just to look for questions that we can feature on podcast Q&As monthly. And we actually got one uh, from someone in Bed Adcock, who asked, how do you justify breaks in different sports to parents slash kids who are afraid of getting behind, right? So we're opening up the early sports specialization can of worms. And I've obviously been pretty outspoken on this over the course of time that I don't believe in early sports specialization as either a safe option or an effective option when we're talking about long-term athletic development. But I do think it's probably long overdue to devote an entire podcast to this, particularly in the context of baseball development. So I think this is a a two-pronged question. You have to appreciate both the science and the selling. So from a science standpoint, we need to talk about 
you know, what adaptations are taking place that make people more susceptible to injuries. And then we also have to appreciate um, the selling side of things. It's not enough just to know something, right? We, we know that seatbelts save lives, but a lot of people still don't wear their seatbelts, right? Um, so we have to understand how to sell some of these things to our, our parents, our coaches, and our athletes. Um, so we're going to attack it from multiple uh, angles. And the first angle I think you have to take is the actual statistics. I think it's important to have a, a feel for some of the numbers um, you know, that, that serve as a foundation for this uh, discussion. And actually, it was really timely because in March of 2020, um, Patrick Buckley's group uh, came out with a good study. It was called Youth Single Sports Specialization in Professional Baseball Players. It was in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. So it's relatively fresh numbers. Um, and I thought it was a really cool study because it didn't just uh, do a survey of, of players, but it actually broke them out uh, based on where they came from. So, you know, the, they wrote up their purpose as the purpose of this study was to describe the age and prevalence of single sport specialization in a cohort of current professional baseball athletes. In addition, we sought to understand the trends surrounding single sport specialization in professional baseball players raised within and outside the United States. So I think it's really cool that they rolled in international players in here because the perceptions are definitely markedly different. So what they did was they did a survey. They just looked at um, you know the rate of specialization. They looked at the age when people started to specialize for baseball. They also looked at the reasons for specialization, which is an important topic we're going to touch on later. And then also what I thought was an intriguing add on this study was they actually asked the athletes about their perception of their injuries. Do they feel like at some point along the way they got hurt because of their specialization in baseball? In all, they had 1,673 professional baseball players um, from 26 of the 30 major league teams. And they found that about 44.5% of professional athletes specialized in playing a single sport during their childhood. Um, those who reported specializing in their youth did so at an average age of 14.09 years. Now, what's interesting about that, um, as I looked at the data set, was the standard deviation was 2.79 years. So what we realized is we have you know, athletes that, that said they specialized that were actually like 17. So for me, when a kid plays three sports all the way up to being a junior in high school and decides just to focus on baseball as a senior because um, you know he's a highly coveted draft prospect or something like that, to me that's not specialization. That's, that's just an understanding of where your success is and what level of risk you're willing to take. Um, what was also interesting about this study, though, was that um, players who grew up outside the U.S. specialized at a significantly earlier age than ones that were native to the U.S. So um, internationally, it was 12.3 years old versus 14.89 years old of players who were from the U.S. So um, what I think was really intriguing about that is they just don't have as many options internationally, right? If you're a, a young baseball player growing up in the Dominican Republic, it's not super feasible to join a hockey team and you don't have lacrosse competing for your attention. You know, even sports like basketball and, and some other things down there are just not going to be nearly as prevalent. So um, I think there's less competing demands for their attention. And it's probably one of the reasons why specialization is substantially higher there not so much that people are just competing for college scholarships or to get drafted or anything like that. It's just what's accessible to them. Um, but what was also interesting about the study is they showed that MLB players raised in the U.S. 
recalled a significantly higher incidence of sustaining an injury attributed to specialization as opposed to those that were raised outside the U.S. So it was 27 and change percent for U.S. athletes and, and 20 and change uh, percent for those raised internationally. You know, if we're looking at this from a, a pure, uh, you know, socioeconomic status uh, standpoint, there's probably better access to medical care here in the U.S. with respect to sports medicine. So a lot of those individuals may have just been treated for something that, you know, on the international level may have been written off as soreness or something that maybe wasn't as clinically significant. Um, so just basically the, the takeaways from this study is that, you know, effectively more than half of our major league baseball players did not specialize, right? All the way up to their senior year in high school before they entered college or professional baseball. And even of the ones that, that did, a lot of them probably did it later in their teenage years than you probably think. You know, so I think for the majority of these people, um, you know, listening to this podcast, we probably need to hang our hats a little bit more on the U.S.-based players as opposed to the international players because we want to make sure that we're comparing apples and apples and not apples and oranges. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is I, I want to throw an anecdotal component into this kind of first discussion point. Not nearly as many of our big leaguers were absolute phenomenal athletes in high school. Or I should say they weren't necessarily phenomenal baseball players in high school. Um, I, I've commented on this in the past in the podcast, but you know there was a time years ago when we had you know, 35 or 40 big league guys that came into the facility on a single day, and there was only one player in that group who actually made their area code roster. Um, and I thought that was super intriguing where, um, you know, that's the, the top 220 to 240 high school players in the country. And only one of our big league guys actually made that. So you can go back and you can look. Noah Syndergaard didn't make the Rangers area code roster out of Texas when he was in high school. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to Max Scherzer. He didn't even know what area codes was when we first discussed it. Um, and, you know, certainly there have been some incredible players, guys like Kershaw and Pedroia that, that played at area codes. Um, but it's, it's actually really shocking. Um, you know, AJ Pollock, um, I don't think was an, was an area code player from the Northeast. So a lot of these guys go to college, they figure it out. Maybe they're a late bloomer. Um, Steve, excuse me, Steve Ciszek is one of our, you know, longtime athletes, one of my closest friends. Uh, Steve grew six inches, you know, his first year in college, really discovered the weight room and velocity surged, you know, after being a multi-sport athlete in high school. So they're example after example, including a lot of the players that we've had on this podcast that'll, that'll speak to the benefits of, of being a multifaceted athlete, you know, throughout the middle school and high school years, and then only honing in on baseball, you know, thereafter and, and actually developing at a rapid rate then. Now to build on that first point, um, from a second, you know, pure dollars and cents standpoint, selling out for college scholarships and viewing specialization as some form of an investment tool is just poor financial planning. We know that, I think it was back in 2008, the average college athletic scholarship was about $10,000. Um, and it barely offsets the investment when you consider what it takes to play travel ball and you know invest in all kinds of different training initiatives and put yourself up in hotels and buy uniforms and gloves and all that stuff. So you know, really, that's never been a good attitude to take. I think it's much more important to appreciate that you know if you're going to develop in the context of baseball, what it might allow you to do is get an education that might have otherwise been a reach. Maybe a, a great baseball prowess allows you to you know get into a school that might have otherwise been academically you know out of your league a little bit um, additionally the average college athletic scholarship barely offsets that investment when you consider that a sport like baseball only has 11.7 total scholarships to spread over an entire team so this this mindset of specializing early to get 
uh, you know, a college scholarship. You know, to be honest, I very rarely hear it from parents anymore, but it is still out there, and I think it's something that's important to head off. Um, you know, third, and also on the statistical front, I think you have to emphasize success rates for two different reasons. And I call them success rates, but in reality, they're they're more of failure rates, right? So if we actually go to the NCA's website, you can pull up the participation levels for high school, college baseball. Um, division one, two, and three, and then how many of those go on to professional baseball. So for the 2018-19 high school uh, academic year, there were 482,000 and change high school baseball participants nationwide, and there were 36,000 and change players in division one, two, and three baseball. So 7.3% of them get to an NCAA level, um, which, you know, in of itself is great, right? You know, it's an opportunity to continue to create all that. And if we take it a step further, you know, we have those 36,000 NCAA participants, about 8,000 of them are draft eligible in a given year. So, um, you know, you had 1,217 draft picks in 2019. You take out the high school draft picks from there, and there were 791 players drafted from NCAA baseball. So 791 out of 8,000 that were draft eligible, you have about 9.9% of guys who go from NCAAs, um, whether it's Division One, Two, or Three, into professional baseball. Now, it's it's very important to realize that you know the study that we mentioned earlier and what we're talking about here is not big leaguers, right? These are just guys that got a foot in the door to go play professional baseball, and you know that number's you know obviously been getting smaller, especially with this year. The draft was was shorter, and you know in the past we had a lot more rounds in the draft. It was you know pared back to forty rounds in recent years. So we just realized that. Um, you know, getting your foot in the door doesn't necessarily mean having a sustainable career, right? Um, you know, these these nine sorry these 9.9% of players that are moving on from NCAA baseball into to pro baseball aren't just getting five years in the big leagues. They're not retiring on the salaries that come from it. So we just want to be cautious about encouraging players to put all their eggs in one basket, both in the context of selling out for a scholarship, but also just trying to race to professional baseball as quickly as they can. Um, but I do think these numbers can be helpful for another reason. I think they reemphasize the commitment it'll take to be successful against these odds, right? There's, there's certainly a high failure rate, if you think about it, for college baseball players trying to get to professional baseball. Just over 90% of them don't make it, right? And some of them may not want to go it, that route. Some may you know, be disinterested in playing professional. Maybe they have different careers they want to pursue um, you know, after all those years in involved baseball. But I do think it's important to realize that we have 90% that don't make it. And that's not to say that they're not trying hard or anything like that. But the failure rate is obviously you know, nine times higher than the success rate. So what we have to ask the players that we interact with are you just going to outwork them or do you want to work smarter too, right? Because there's certainly a lot of guys in here who are probably attacking it the wrong way. So, you know, is early sports specialization the way to do it? Um, you know, I, I just don't think it is, particularly when we look at the, the numbers, you know, that were in the aforementioned study. Big leaguers, more than 50% of them did not specialize. So we need to really look at the bigger picture and, and piece things together. Now, fourth, I think it's important that we make a compelling case beyond just some of these statistics that I've just outlined. And it actually reminds me of a great quote from Carmen Gallo um, in his book, Talk Like Ted. It was a book written um, just to basically outline the features of TED Talks that were the most compelling and popular. 
And he made a comment that was, statistics are boring unless they're wrapped in an emotionally appealing package. And this is where I think we have to realize that we're, we're selling, right? We're selling in every aspect of, of what we're trying to do. I'm trying to sell my daughters on eating their vegetables at dinner. We're trying to sell our athletes on doing single leg exercises when it may not be as cool as you know squatting heavy or whatever it may be. So we're always selling in our coaching world, but we're also selling to parents, to athletes, to buy into the systems that we think are best for their long-term development. And this is where you can make the case for injury rates being astronomically higher in the early specialization group. Um, and I think this is something that gets overlooked in the earlier study that um, we mentioned, the survey study from Buckley's group. That entire sample size was a representation of survivorship bias. In other words, you only heard from the guys that made it to professional baseball. To get to those 1,673 pro guys that responded in that study, you have to ask yourself how many young arms were mangled by early specialization. And when we look at those 1,673 pro guys, you have to ask how many of them were drafted or signed with elbows and shoulders or low backs, whatever it may be, that had significant structural deviations from normalcy that are just waiting to reach threshold while in pro ball. Right, we've talked about this. We actually even discussed it on the recent podcast with Jesus Lazardo, um, who was a hard-throwing high school guy and then wound up having Tommy John surgery right before the draft. What we're seeing a lot of these young kids present with you know, age 18, 19, 20, um, or even slightly beyond there when they have Tommy John, is you, when they go in to do the surgery, they're seeing that there were previous areas of calcification on that ligament. So what it speaks to is a lot of these athletes had low-grade injuries earlier in their uh, career that maybe weren't symptomatic necessarily or just they thought was normal soreness, whatever it may be, and it, it created a small structural defect on that ligament that eventually when they get bigger, stronger, they throw hard, they optimize their mechanics to to basically you know, impart a lot of force to the baseball at the highest level, all of a sudden that ligament becomes the path of least resistance, right? And we've certainly seen it in, in other athletes um, with stress fractures in the back. We've seen it with, with shoulder issues, you name it. So um, what you have to really appreciate about this study that we're just you know, kind of reviewed was that less than 20% of the respondents were big leaguers. It was actually you know, shockingly uh, much, much higher among minor leaguers. And the average age of the respondents was 23.6 years old with a standard deviation of 8.63 years. So, right, that's that's a pretty interesting thing because you have to realize you have guys over age 30. And you had also guys that were substantially younger, presumably international signings, things like that. So do I really want to take the wisdom from an 18-year-old, right? I, I remember being 18 and thinking I knew everything about everything. And a lot of those respondents were probably ones that were, you know, basically just speaking to recent successes and not necessarily realizing how their decisions might play out long term. And, and we have to appreciate that that 18 or 19 year old kid that thought specialization worked out great for him might be the individual who gets to professional baseball and realizes that he didn't have a broad enough foundation of athleticism. He didn't have a rich enough proprioceptive environment to take on a lot of more complex topics that, that may be more challenging, right? We see this kind of all the time with a kid who's got an unbelievable swing in high school and is a, a rock star, you know, facing guys that throw 81 and, you know, he, he impresses everybody during BP and then he gets to professional baseball and all of a sudden he can't hit a hard slider. Um, you know, he can't pick up change-ups. He can't do a lot of the things that you need to do to hit at that highest level. Or he may be a pitcher who's just struggles to, you know, take on mechanical changes. He needs to repeat his delivery or to learn a new pitch, whatever it may be. So, 
you know, I think we talk a lot about early sports specialization being important for protecting kids, you know, from injury. You know, let's stay away from doing the same thing over and over again. Instead, let's give them this, this you know, wide range of activities at the youngest age. But that wide range of activities in many cases is building this incredible foundation for motor learning in the years that follow. So um, you want to build that base wide so that the more specific things as you get narrower and narrower, you know, work well. So what I would also just say is that that 23.6 average age in this study tells us that there are a lot of kids in that study, and they are kids that are not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. So it'd be interesting as a follow-up study to take all the people that said that they think early sports specialization helped them um, and that, that claimed that it never contributed to an injury and follow them over the next 10 years and see what actually happens because I think you'd be surprised at what some of the longer term outcomes are. Um, so with that said, you know, just kind of building on this, this case of, uh, you know, statistics are boring unless they're wrapped in an emotionally appealing package. And this is where you start to have these conversations with, with kids and parents. When a kid gets hurt from doing things the wrong way, you really have two challenges. First, you have the, the physical pain that comes with that injury and the emotional pain that the youth athlete feels from both the injury and the time away from the game, right? This is part of their, you know, their, their, entire, their lives. Um, this is part of their social circle. It's, it's a big part of their identity. So, you know, if you have a Tommy John surgery as a 16-year-old, you're, you're literally out of commission for that entire year. Um, there's a lot of baseball that you watch where you wish you could be out on the field. And, and certainly there's a lot of discomfort that, that goes with both the injury itself and then obviously the, the, the acute period after the surgery. So there's that side of things. But I think the other discussion point that never seems to get thrown out there is when you get hurt, there's an opportunity cost of that time. It's a lot of misdevelopment. So you think about what happens with a Tommy John surgery, right? There's the injury. And then in many cases, you're waiting to get diagnosed. You're waiting to schedule your surgery. Then you have your surgery. Um, you know, typically it's going to be about two weeks before athletes are able to get back into the weight room after that surgery. So already you're probably at six or eight weeks um, there. And in many cases, you're you're very minimal in terms of what you can do in the weight room on that throwing side. So it's it's a it's a less effective overall training program for months. And you realize you're probably not back to your throwing program until the four or five month mark. And you know, that's also when your strength conditioning program can start to maybe ramp up a little bit more. You start to get, you know, similar loads right versus left. And, and so what we just realize is that, you know, that entire process of an injury, it's not just the, the timeline to return to games, but you're also missing out on a lot of uh, development in other capacities. So um, we always try to, you know, reshape things when individuals have injuries, surgical interventions, looking at it as an opportunity to develop in a, in a broad context. Um, but there is always an opportunity cost to an injury. And we talk about, you know, middle school, high school athletes. Progress should always be very linear, right? They should make steady improvements. Um, it shouldn't be up, down, up, down. What we see is a, a trend in athletes who don't benefit on the long term because they miss a lot of training time in season or, you know, they get hurt and they miss three months, something along those lines. So I think one of the things that we're chasing above all else in our young athletes is continuity. Now, my fifth and most important point is really much more on the selling side of things. Beyond all these statistics and making the case for what potentially could happen to an athlete who wants to specialize, I think it's incredibly important to give people examples that there is a safer way to be successful, right? So one of the things that I'll often do when I have these discussions with players and parents um, at our facility is I'll walk them across the room and introduce them to a pro guy who did it the right way, a guy who 
you know, played multiple sports all throughout high school, maybe specialized as a senior or something along those lines, who can speak to the progress that he made over the course of time. So we want, you know, those conversations to center around people who have found breaks in action from competitive baseball to instead focus on rest slash recuperation, uh, both mentally and physically, and, you know, just as importantly, speak to how that break from competitive action actually set them up for better preparation strategies, how taking that time away from the from baseball allowed them to really get their cuff strength where it needed to be, allowed them to prove their scapular control, allowed them to work on their arm path or change their delivery, learn a new pitch, allowed them to put on 20 pounds in an offseason when they needed to desperately gain weight. So I really, you know, in the back of my mind, I always have these guys in the facility at all times who can kind of speak to the development they have. And we also have guys that can speak to the things that they did wrong right? Who, who wish they hadn't gone out and thrown so many innings in high school. And, you know, these are discussion points that, you know, pair up very, very nicely with a lot of statistics we've happened. We, we've pulled out over the course of this podcast. Um, you know, I look at, at Olson's study on injured athletes, I think it was from 2008, that really presented a lot of these things talking about, you know, throwing over 100 innings per year is a big problem. You know, injured athletes participated in, I think it was six times as many showcases as non-injured athletes. So we have lots of research, but the point is we need to do a better job of selling it to our athletes. So, you know, I think as we bring this this whole you know podcast you know to a close, it's important that we we give some some recommendations. So you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of pull this together based on a lot of the questions that I often get. The first thing I would tell you is I love the idea of individuals just getting involved in strength and conditioning, just starting to test the waters and learn it about age 12. Um, what I love for our 12 year olds is they don't have any bad habits, right? What they can do is come to the gym. They're not uh, trying to load up the bar with, with tons and tons of weight and power through bad technique. Instead, they're completely open books. They're just excited to be there in many cases because they're around athletes who are four or five years older than them and they think it's cool to be in there. Um, so I love using that as a teaching time to get them excited about exercise and taking care of themselves. But just as importantly, where strength and conditioning is different, um, and this is one of my biggest criticisms of a lot of the sports specialization stuff, is they roll in weight training to focusing on one sport and I actually view that dramatically different what's what's great about what we can do from a strength and conditioning standpoint is every time those athletes come in we can expose them to a wide variety of activities there's actually shockingly little um, you know overuse potential in the weight room if in a well-structured program they come in they can do some self-myofascial release they can go through a mobility warm-up they can go through movement competencies and their plyo progressions they can throw med balls in all different ways you know, they, they strength train, you know, in all different planes of motion, you know, we can work in arm care stuff, all these things that effectively take them away from the specificity of baseball while at the same time still appreciating that there are positions that they get to. So I love getting athletes involved around age 12. Typically what we'll shoot for, for a lot of those kids is we'll do like twice a week, full body workouts, um, really between ages 12 and 14. I think it works really, really well. Um, it's just enough to kind of, um, you know, give them some exposure to that. But at the same time, we're encouraging them to play as many sports as you can, right? And we're also speaking to them and their parents about setting up their yearly calendar. You know, when are you going to take some time off from, from playing baseball so you can develop in a more multifaceted sense? 
And then once age 15 rolls around, um, you know, I like athletes to start going to three days a week training, usually kind of 15, 16 is where that, that age range fits well. And those are, again, they're, they're very similar to the sessions you do at, at age, you know, 12 to 14, but the loading is a little bit more appreciable. Um, they generally have a little bit more work capacity. The, the change, the change in training focus actually is, is somewhat prevalent more so with respect to mobility stuff because you have a lot of kids that are hitting their growth spurts and maybe a lot stiffer so um, greg rose has been very outspoken about this in terms of long-term athletic development that growth spurts a great time to train power just because they too tend to be stiff and you know you can be a little bit springier through those tendons so you know we'll push that a little bit harder um, and really 17 18 for me is when you can start to you know push guys a little bit more they may be in there you know four to six days a week similar to what we do with our our college and our professional athletes in many cases those 17, 18 year olds are friends with some of our college guys and our, our pro guys. They've gotten to know them, so they want to push like that. Um, and what we'll often see is around you know 17, 18, maybe the athletes switch from being a three-sport athlete to being a two-sport athlete. So it's kind of like a fall-spring split. So maybe they play football in the fall. It wraps up around Thanksgiving. They can start their off-season throwing program December 1st to get ready for you know the start of the high school baseball season. Um, you know, so I love that fall-spring kind of approach. I wouldn't force it on anybody, but it seems to work really well. You know, obviously a little bit more challenging when you got you know basketball players who are you know getting run into the ground and are having a hard time doing their throwing programs going right into the spring season. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm always pushing for our athletes to, you know, to, to have that multifaceted stimulus over the course of their entire career. The thing that I would also really heavily emphasize here is it doesn't have to be organized sports to be sports. So I think one of the things that you can often get from your basketball guys is, or sorry, your baseball guys is encourage them to go out and play some pickup hoops, play some ultimate frisbee, do some stuff differently. I was a tennis and soccer player growing up, but you know, all throughout, I mean, I played indoor tennis and indoor soccer in the wintertime, but we would play street hockey. You know, we had, you know, very, very competitive, you know, games in a variety of sports as part of one of the, the periods that I had at school. Um, so I just think it's, it's important to realize that all we're trying to do is we're trying to find um, some movement variability um, and give them a challenge to develop in different contexts. But just as importantly, we've got to protect them from baseball because throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion in all sports. And, um, you know, you, you want to be prepared from a physical standpoint before you go out and you take on those tasks. So you know, bring this stuff all together. I'm not a fan of early sports specialization. There may be a time for it later in the high school years for a lot of athletes that may feel like they have a, a career in, in professional baseball or those that are going to play, you know, higher level college baseball. Um, I don't think, you know, selling out for college scholarships is a smart financial investment. Rather, you should be using baseball as an avenue to, to get an education that might otherwise be a reach for you. And then last but not least, make sure that as you're reading a lot of these studies, um, you know, that are, that are surveys that, you know, report on what professional baseball players think worked for them. It's very similar to some of the hitting and the pitching mechanic. You have to really take a little bit of it with a grain of salt because they might not actually appreciate that they could just be a sample size of one that it kind of made it in spite of some of the things they did as opposed to because of what they did. Um, so thanks for listening. Hopefully this is helpful. Um, if you really enjoyed this, we'd love it if you could leave a review for us on iTunes. Um, like I said in our intro, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break now. Here, this is episode 75. I'm going to gather our thoughts and we're going to come back with some really good content for you this fall. But thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast 
and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.